Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. When he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property for prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord.
Well, this morning we are concluding our series on this very famous parable that we just heard read, uh, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, It's a wonderful, beautiful picture of God's love for us as lost people, but as we said at the very beginning of the series, if we only read this parable as a picture of God's love for us as individuals, then we're missing one of the biggest points. Because Jesus told this parable in response to something. What is it? We printed verses 1 and 2 again in our bulletin this week so that we could see it. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, those were the religious leaders in the community, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What prompted this parable? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the moral upright people in that community, they were angry that Jesus was welcoming sinners. And understand something, it wasn't just sinners. It says he was welcoming tax collectors. Tax collectors were financial predators. These were people, Jewish people, who worked for the Roman government to impose unjust taxes on their own people. They were traitors, they were abusers, they were victimizers, they were part of a brutally oppressive system. So these were not just people that the religious leaders would have looked at and say, well, we disapprove of their lifestyle choices. No, they were enemies. They weren't just wrong, they were evil. And really, when we think about it, you know, they couldn't bear the thought of being in community with these people. And and really, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Um, Alan Jacobs is a professor of humanities at Baylor University, wrote a little book recently called How to Think. And in the book, he tells the story of an anthropologist named Susan Friend Harding. Susan Friend Harding wanted to uh, study, she wanted to write a book about American fundamentalist Christianity. But when she told this idea to her fellow academics, they became very suspicious of her. They started asking her questions like, are you now or have you ever been a born-again Christian? Uh, They couldn't imagine why she would want to spend time investigating people who were so obviously repugnant. In fact, the way they treated her um, for even being interested in this subject caused her to write a whole separate essay that was entitled Representing Fundamentalism, The Problem of the Repugnant Cultural Other. Isn't that a great phrase? Repugnant Cultural Other. Or RCO for short. We'll come back to that. Um, RCO does not just refer to people with whom we disagree. RCO refers to people we see as morally repugnant. They're not just mistaken, they're evil. They're beyond the pale. People who are so aligned with the forces of darkness and evil in this world that, that they really no longer have any place in human community. So to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the sinners, they were RCOs repugnant cultural others, and and they were furious that Jesus would welcome these people, that he would invite them into fellowship and community with himself. Both Jesus and the Pharisees saw the RCOs as a problem, but they defined that problem in very different ways. The Pharisees would have pointed their fingers at the tax collectors and the sinners and said, they're the problem with the world. Their very presence in this world is what's wrong with this world. Jesus, very gently in this parable, is he's turning the mirror back on them and he's saying, no, 
The problem is not that these people are in the world. The problem is that you don't want a world in which people like this could find healing, restoration, and rehabilitation back into community. The problem is that the idea, the thought of a world like that does not bring you joy, and it should. In other words, Jesus is telling them and us that we don't have a people problem, we have a joy problem. Because we look around at the world around us and we realize when we do that that not much has changed for us um, in 2,000 years because our world is still filled with all kinds of groups and tribes and factions that see each other as the repugnant cultural other. And the idea of being restored to community with each other, we find it very difficult to find joy in that idea. Especially when, let's just face reality, so many of them actually are active participants in the evil of the world. How do you find joy in the idea of being restored to community with people like that? And listen, you know, throughout this series, I have felt hyper aware of just how insensitive it can sound for me to stand here and talk to so many of you about compassion for evildoers and oppressors and victimizers and abusers. Especially as a privileged white man, I feel the weight of standing here and talking about this, but it's not me who's saying it, it's Jesus. And we have to listen to him because he's the one we listen to here. And what Jesus is doing is is inviting us to consider what is God's vision for the world? What kind of world does God want this world to be? What's God's end game for history In this parable, Jesus is giving us an image, and he's saying this is an image of God's endgame for all of history, and the image he gives us is a celebration, a party, a feast. He's saying when you want to know what God's ultimate vision for the whole world is, think of it as a feast. In fact, whenever the Bible wants to talk about God's ultimate vision for his goal for history, almost always it does so by using this language of a feast. So this week, as we finish our study on this parable, I want to conclude by just spending a little time meditating on what this image of a feast means for us and what it means for us to pursue God's vision for the world, not ours, and especially what it means for us in our relationships with those RCOs in our life. Do you have an RCO in your life? What does this image of a feast mean for our relationships with them? We're going to see three things about this feast this morning. A feast is a place of personal need, material renewal, and joyful community. Okay? This feast is a place of personal need, material renewal, and joyful community. First, it's a place of personal need. And the idea here is pretty basic, but incredibly important. Your body needs food in order to keep from deteriorating and dying. So when you eat, it's an acknowledgement that you don't have the power to keep yourself alive and that you need outside help, food. So when you sit down at a table, it's a way of saying, I need this in order to stay alive. I need this personally. And here's what I mean. Look at these two brothers. Which one of them is at the feast? The one who knows he needs it. The younger brother had gone to the father and asked for his inheritance while the father was still alive. Now, we've seen that in that culture, that was a way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. It was a huge betrayal. 
the, the son, in essence, had revoked his membership in the family. So when all the money is gone and he's starving in a pigsty and he finally comes to his, his senses and decides to go back home, he knows he's not going to get a warm welcome. He knows that he's revoked his membership in the family, and he knows that, um, that he is no longer worthy to be called his father's son. So he thinks his only shot is to go back and to work for his father, just like all the other servants. He's going to say, Father, treat me like one of your hired servants. His idea is that he's going to go earn his way back into the family. Friends, that is a very religious approach to God and to life. Religion says, if I'm a good person, if I work really hard, if I'm devout, and I obey all the rules, then God will love me and accept me and, and, and welcome me to his feast. You see, this father, this God, though, he doesn't operate like that. Notice that the son, he never gets to say, treat me like one of your hired servants. The father won't let him. The father just reinstates him back into community. He, he, he reinstates his sonship upon the son, apart from the son doing anything to earn it or work his way back into it. Now, remember last week we saw that the status of sonship was a very unique status of honor and privilege and authority and dignity, and the father just bestows it upon him without the son doing anything for it. It was scandalous. Friends, that is the gospel. Religion says the only way into God's love, the only way into God's feast is you have to earn your way in. That's religion. The gospel says no. The gospel says the only way into God's love is by grace. God enters, allows you to enter into his feast by grace. You do not earn your way into the feast. You do not earn your way into his love. He bestows it upon you by grace. The younger son is able to go into the feast because he knows he's not worthy to go in. That's the only way he can go in. He knows that he needs it. Now, contrast that with the older brother in this parable. He's coming in from the field. He hears the music and the dancing. He finds out that his younger brothers come home and there's a big party going on, but he refuses to go into the party. Why? You can see in verse 29, he tells his father, he says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So you see, the younger brother's doing, uh, I mean, the older brother, he's doing religion, right? He's thinking to himself, wait a minute. I've earned my status in this family. I've lived a good life. I've obeyed all the rules. I've earned my seat at the feast. But, he, but you see, when he says that, he's just as lost as the father, as the younger brother, that is, because he's alienated from the father, the older brother and the younger brother are both equally lost because they're both alienated from the father just in different ways. Jesus is showing us that sin is not just doing bad things. It is that, but it's more than that. That's way too superficial a view of sin. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's also doing good things for the wrong reasons. And you can see that from the way the older brother talks to the father. You can see that he didn't really care about the father. He just cares about himself. So he says, Father, you never even gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And notice he does not say so that we, dear old dad, you and I, so that we could celebrate. No, he says so that I could celebrate. He doesn't really care about the father. He cares about himself. He doesn't care about the father. He just wants the father's stuff, which, which means that he's not really serving the father. He's using him. 
Both of these brothers are lost. Both of them are alienated from the father. They're just alienated in different ways. The younger brother needs to repent of his badness, but the older brother needs to repent of his goodness. The prideful idea that, that he can earn his way into the father's love and put the father in his debt through his own moral performance. By the way, that is a far more dangerous place to be, spiritually speaking, because at least with the younger brother, you can see just how deeply in need he is, right? I mean, he's rolling around with the pigs. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. The older brother looks like a very upstanding, very moral citizen, but he is in a spiritual pigsty of pride and self-righteousness, and self-salvation, which means that the only way you can come into God's feast is if you know that you need it. And I'm going to say something here that maybe for some of you is going to feel like a slap in the face, but this is what Jesus is telling us in this parable. He's saying that if you think that God accepts you because you're a good person, you're a lost older brother. The only way you can come into God's feast is if you know that there's nothing you can do to earn your way into the feast in the first place. And that Jesus had to die on a cross in order to make a way for you in. Now, before we move on, briefly, you know, let me apply this to our relationships with those RCOs in our life. Um, If you don't believe that God is mad enough at sin to send a Redeemer, or that you're bad enough in your sin to need a Redeemer, then the cross of Christ will never change your heart toward yourself. It will never change your heart towards other people because you will always have an RCO in your life and you will always feel justified in condemning them because you're doing so from a vantage point of your moral superiority. The first step is knowing that you have just as great a need of salvation as they do. That, my friends, is the radical counterintuitive nature of the gospel because it is the radical counterintuitive nature of grace. It means that if you know that you can't earn your way in, then you're welcome in. But if you think you can earn your way in, then you can't come in. The feast is a place of personal need. But secondly, it's a place of material renewal. I mentioned in the beginning that every time the Bible talks about God's vision for the world, his ultimate goal for history, every time it talks about that, the Bible uses the language of a feast. So for instance, Isaiah 25, very famous passage, it says, On the mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Or Jesus, uh, many places, whenever he's talking about God's vision for the world, the, the end of history, have you ever noticed how many of those parables that talk about that, how often they take place at a feast? all the time. Or Revelation at the very end, the Re- book of Revelation is all about God's ultimate vision for the world. And at the very end of that book in Revelation chapter, chapter 19, do you remember what it's about? The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a feast. What does that mean? Maybe you've noticed that, you know, when I'm talking about this, I haven't used the language of heaven. And that's not because the Bible doesn't use the language of heaven. It does. But when it talks about this, it always uses the language not just of heaven, but of the new heavens and the new earth. Because whenever it talks about God's vision, his ultimate vision for the renewal of the world, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, God's ultimate goal is not us redeemed souls escaping this earth and floating away into some disembodied heaven. 
he always talks about God's heaven coming down and renewing this earth, this world. The Bible says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foretaste of the resurrection, not just of our physical bodies, but of the entire universe. It's a foretaste of God's vision for the whole cosmos. And when Jesus talks about the feast, he's pointing us to his vision for the whole universe. In fact, almost everything Jesus did when he was here points us to this vision, God's vision for the world. So for instance, in Jesus' miracles, you know, what kind of miracles did he do? Uh, He gave sight to blind people. He gave uh, hearing to deaf people. Lame people walked. Uh, Sick people got healed. When you think about it, you know, Jesus could have done miracles that were so much flashier than that, right? He could have flown through the air. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Jesus. He could have done so much more flashy, impressive miracles, but the miracles Jesus did is, are a foretaste of God's vision for the renewal of this world. God is going to put an end to disease and injustice and suffering and poverty and war and racism and oppression and disaster, excuse me, and even death in the end. And he's not going to do it by taking us out of this world. He's going to do it by, take, by renewing this world. God's vision for this world, friends, is not just spiritually redeemed souls. It's a materially renewed creation, which means that it's going to be a place of feasting. It's going to be a place of music and dancing, of running and leaping, of hugging and kissing. That, by the way, is an utterly unique vision So for instance, Eastern religions say that this material world is an illusion. Therefore, it doesn't really exist. Atheism says that this material world is an accident. Therefore, it doesn't really matter. Not ultimately, not not eternally. But Christianity says this material world, that God created it to be a place of goodness and beauty, but it's been wrecked by sin. But God is so personally committed to this world. He loves this world so much that he got personally involved by coming here in person in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, that also has huge implications for us as we consider our relationships with the RCOs in our life. You know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this parable is not primarily about how we do justice in, the, in this world or how we fight evil in this world. Nonetheless, there are some implications here for us. And it's this. If Christians know that God is personally committed to ending suffering, injustice, evil, and oppression in this world, then his followers must be just as committed to that as he is. But here's the thing. God's goal is to end evil without ending evildoers. Even more than that, his goal is to end evil while rescuing the evildoers. Do we share that goal? We should. But understand something. It does not mean that we ignore evil. It does not mean that we just sweep it under the carpet. We do not ignore evil. We name it. We fight it. We stand against it. We work against it. But always, always, if possible, with the simultaneous goal of the restoration of the evildoer, we are called to work for the renewal of this world. And just as Jesus and his resurrection is a foretaste of the renewal to come, so the church is also called to be a foretaste of that renewal to come. You could think of it like this. Have you ever gone to an out-of-town wedding um, and traveled a long time and you get there and by the time you arrive, you're tired and you're hungry and you're sitting in the service and your stomach's kind of grumbling because you're so hungry? 
And then, you know, the wedding's over, you get to the reception, but you still can't eat because the bride and the groom are doing pictures somewhere else, and you got to wait for them to show up before you can sit down and, and eat the meal. So you're standing there, you're hungry, and all of a sudden, what happens? A, a team of people come out, and they've got trays, and they pick up off the trays, and they hand you a little cracker <laughs> with a little piece of cheese on it. And then they give you a little cup of wine or soda or something like that. What happens? When you're that hungry, you never thought anything tasted so good. And yet, what is it? It's a cracker. It's nothing. It's not a meal. And yet, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Friends, it's a foretaste. Not only does it take the edge off your hunger right now, but it's a pointer. It's a sign. It's a foretaste of the banquet that you're going to eat in the future. When you become a Christian, you are automatically co-opted under God's catering team to become a foretaste of his joyful feast to the world around you. That's why the first Christians rescued babies from trash heaps where they'd been abandoned to die. That's why the first Christians started the first hospitals, the first orphanages. They were fighting evil. They were a foretaste of the renewal to come, a foretaste of God's joyful feast to the world around them. So first... God's uh, feast is a place of personal need. If you don't believe you need a redeemer, then you're always going to have an RCO in your life, and you're always going to feel morally justified in condemning them. Second, God's feast is a place of material renewal. If you share God's vision for the world, you will become a foretaste of that renewal to the world. But lastly, God's uh, feast is a place of joyful community. What do I mean by that? Well, think about this. A feast, by definition, is a community thing, right? I mean, you can have a meal by yourself, but you can't really have a feast by yourself. You know why the Pharisees were grumbling? We talked about this at the beginning. They were grumbling, grrr, because they were so furious at Jesus because he invited RCOs to the feast. He invited lost, evil people to come and sit at the table with him. The Pharisees were saying, I can't believe that he would do that. I can't be in the same room as those people. I can't sit down at a table with those people. I can't have anything to do with those people. Those people are everything that's wrong with the world. And Jesus tells this parable to try to help them to see that their biggest problem was not a people problem. It was a joy problem. In fact, this parable was the last and the longest of not one but three parables that Jesus actually told in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees. In the first parable, he talked about a lost sheep. And, and when the lost sheep was found, Jesus says there was joy in heaven. In the second parable, it was about a lost coin. And when the woman found her lost coin, Jesus says there was joy before the angels of God. Do you see the pattern here? In this parable, when the lost son comes home, Jesus says there was joy. There was a celebration. There was a party. There was a feast. Jesus is saying to them and to us that when lost people get found, there should be joy in our hearts, not anger. That the idea of lost people being found should give joy to our hearts, not anger. If there's anger in our hearts, it's because we think we've earned our place at the table and they haven't. We feel morally superior to them. But Jesus presses us even further than that. You know, these three parables, the sheep, the coin, and the son, these three parables go together. It's like a compound lesson. Did you notice in the first parable, somebody goes out searching for the sheep? 
And in the second parable, somebody goes out searching for the coin. But in this parable, nobody goes out searching for the younger brother. And we're supposed to ask the question, who's going to go out searching for the younger brother? Whose responsibility is it to go out searching? Everyone in that culture would have known it's the older brother's responsibility. He's the firstborn son. He's the one whose responsibility it is to take care of the family. He's the one who should have gone out searching for his younger brother, but he didn't. Why? Because it would have cost him dearly. Remember back at the beginning of this parable, it says that the father divided his estate between the sons. Now, as the firstborn son, the, uh, the older brother would have gotten most of the estate. It would have gone into his storehouse, which means that when the younger brother comes back at the end of the parable, guess who's paying for the party? The older brother is. So when the father at the very end says, my son, all that is mine is yours, he's not just blowing smoke. It was a statement of actual fact. The older brother was the heir. And the only way that he could go out searching for the younger brother was to risk even more of his inheritance in order to bring the younger brother back home, back to the feast, back to find a chair at the table. Which means that the older brother had a choice to make. In order for him to sit down at that feast, something was going to have to be empty. Either the chair where his younger brother was supposed to be sitting was going to be empty while his storehouse was full, or his storehouse was going to be empty in order to see that chair full. Jesus is saying, I want you to share the Father's joy in seeing all the chairs full. But to see the chair full means that there's going to be a cost. It would have cost the older brother something to go out searching for his younger brother. It would have meant him risking more of his inheritance. And friends, it always costs us something to go out searching for lost brothers and sisters. There's an emotional cost. There is a psychological cost. There is a social cost. There's an economic cost. Sometimes there's even a physical cost. But the joy of seating, seeing them in the chair should outweigh the grief of what it would cost to get them in the chair. And listen, once again, listen, I, I feel just how precarious it is for me to stand here and talk about this. I feel the absurdity of, of what it means for me as a privileged white man to talk to so many of you about paying the cost because so many of you have paid the cost. You've paid it dearly and you've got the receipts to prove it. And yet it's not me we're listening to here. I'm nothing. Jesus is the one who's sharing this with us. And Jesus is telling us, he's pressing us all to find more joy in filling the chair than we find grief in what it would cost to fill the chair. So what does that joy and what does that cost look like? Martin Luther King preached a very famous sermon uh, called Loving Your Enemies. And in that sermon, he talked about both the joy and the cost. Listen to what he says. He says, Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that surrender to hatred and violence. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. 
We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is just as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Friends, I tremble to take the words of that mighty man upon my lips. But even more would I tremble if I were not to bear witness that the words of Dr. King to his enemies are but an echo of the words of Jesus Christ, the true older brother. The older brother that we need, the words that he would have spoken on the cross. Because when they nailed his hands and his feet to the wood, he would have looked at them and said, I will not just match, I will surpass your capacity to inflict suffering by my capacity to endure it. And when they beat him and stripped him naked and spit on him, he would have said, I will overcome your physical force with my soul force. Beat me, crucify me, kill me, but I shall still love you. Because Jesus Christ paid the cost. When he climbed that tree of death, he went up on that tree and he looks at every single one of us. He gazes at us with love in his eyes and a fire in his heart. He looks at every single one of us and he says, this very day, be ye assured that I am winning you for myself. Be ye assured that I am delivering you, that I am gonna make you my own by my capacity to suffer. For, because this very day, not some day in the future, but this day, I am winning this day freedom from the domination and oppression of sin, freedom from the domination and the oppression of all the evil forces in this world, war, poverty, racism, addiction, disease, hopelessness, even death. I am winning freedom from the domination and the oppression of it all. But even more than that, I am winning you. And therefore, my victory is a double victory, and my joy is a double joy, a triple joy. Dear friends, don't you see? How are you going to go out searching for lost brothers and sisters? Especially when there's a risk? The only way is to see that Jesus is the true older brother who went out searching for you, not just at the risk of his inheritance, but at the cost of his life that he finds more joy in seeing the chairs full than he finds grief in the cost of what it would take, that he finds joy in seeing lost brothers and sisters like you and me sitting in our chairs at his table. What would it cost us to see God's table full of lost people who've been found, of wicked people who have been redeemed, of, of evil people who have been renewed and restored and rehabilitated into community. It starts with this. Friends, don't be more willing to write someone off than God is. Maybe it starts with just being willing to sit down at a table with them. You know, we're going to do that in just a moment as we come and eat the Lord's Supper. Uh, and after the service, we're going to have a meal together, a feast together. We did that on purpose. We want to share a feast together today. 
Maybe even beyond that, maybe it eventually means that you go out searching for lost brothers and sisters, people who would have made themselves RCOs to you, your enemy. Do you see, friends, your deep personal need for redemption? The only way that you are going to go out searching for lost brothers and sisters is if you, if you see that God didn't write you off, but that he went out searching for you on the cross. Do you see your need this morning, your deep personal need for redemption? And has the joy of that redemption called you to become a foretaste of God's joyful feast to the world around you? And will you go out searching for them? The only way you will do that, the only way you can do that is if you see that Jesus Christ is the true older brother who already went out searching for you so that he could make you his younger brothers and sisters. Let's pray.